Praise God. Why don't we do this? Why don't we all stand up for a second, please, just for a couple, couple of seconds. Let's stand up. We're told in the scriptures, especially in the book of Psalms, that we're to lift our hands up to the Lord as an act of worship, as an act of reverence, as an act of just displaying our awe. So even if you're not used to that, one hand. <laughs> just put one hand up and just say this with me. Father, thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. Thank you that according to your word, I can boldly declare that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. For you took him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? Amen. You, had, you put your hands out, you could be seated. Now, some of you that might not be familiar with the word, you say, well, man, that sounds arrogant. No, no, we're just declaring what God says. There is nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves righteous. All we can do is put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe him for transformation. Amen? For regeneration. So, I have a message tonight. Actually, this weekend. Obviously, tonight's the first service of the weekend. That originated about a week and a half ago. I'll go into that more later. But I just want to, I'm so glad there's so many of you here tonight, especially with the weather, it's so gloomy. It would have been easy to sit home and just binge on Netflix all night, you know? So I'm glad that you're here because this message here is going to hit some nerves. All right, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. This is going to be one of those ouch messages. You know, it's one of those messages where you look straight ahead and you don't flinch. Or you give absolutely no hint that it's hitting something, okay? Uh, but we all know. Amen. We all know. So, um, this is part one. We will continue. Uh, there's too much for me to cover in one weekend. So, we will be continuing this next week. I'm trusting God that you're going to listen quick so that I can actually introduce part two because there's a really strong connection there. So, I want to start this teaching with probably one of the most well-known of scriptural principles. Right from the mouth of Jesus, Matthew 22, verse 37. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, what's he saying? On these two commandments rest the entire will of God for our lives, of how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. Amen? Amen? Now, Jesus taught, obviously from the scripture we say it, that Jesus taught that we're supposed to put God first, others next, and then yourself, or I would say ourselves. Amen? Amen. Novel idea, right? I'll say it again because maybe you're not used to hearing this. Okay? It's the desire of our Savior, our Lord, the one who suffered on the cross for us. That we would live a life that puts God the Father first, others next, and that we would put ourselves last. Paul caught this spirit. He understood this also. He takes the same idea, the same concept that Jesus 
taught. And he delivered it to the church at Philippi. It's written for us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility. Could you say that word, please? Humility. humility. Does everybody remember that word, humility? Rather, in humility. I lost my place. <laughs> Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests. But, but to each of you, to the interests of others. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness. The nature of a servant. The nature of a servant not demanding, not requiring, not manipulating, Amen. not pressuring, but became a servant. Amen. 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 A week ago this past Friday night, I had the honor and the privilege of spending time with our young adult coffee house group that meets on Friday nights. They meet Next door, the other end of the building, 7.30? I think 7.30. <clears throat> it was a very busy day that day. And I kept trying to spend some time to hear from God what's going to happen. What am I supposed to do tonight? And the day just got away from us. And so um, we then had prayer at 6 o'clock. We have once a month, we have corporate prayer for anyone who wants to come and join us in prayer. And so right after prayer then, I had about a half an hour before I had to get next door. And I got in my office. I said, Lord, you know how busy I've been. What am I going to cover tonight? What should I go next door with? And I heard this as clear as anything. Literally 10 minutes before I'm going to walk next door. This is what I heard on the inside from the voice of the Holy Spirit. He summed the whole thing up, and that's what this teaching is tonight, in one statement. You need to be careful not to get so caught up in the me trap. Getting so caught up in me that I lose sight of you. I'll say it again. We need to be so careful and so intentional about the way we think, the way we speak, the way we conduct ourselves, that we're not so caught up with me that I lose sight of you. Because every single one of us, we're not called to be self-promoting. We're not called to be self-centered. We're not called to be selfish. We're not called to even be thinking in that mode of self-preservation. I'm supposed to carry your burdens. You're supposed to carry mine. I'm supposed to have your best interests at heart. You're supposed to have mine. Could you imagine what it would be like? Forget about it in the world. Could you imagine what the church would be like if we put others' interests ahead of ourselves? 
if we were more concerned about praying for somebody else than we are just continually going to God for what we want, what we need, what we desire. I told you it was going to be an ouch message. And we see this common thread all throughout Scripture. The danger of placing self before all, all others, including God himself. I went online to get a definition of self-centeredness. This is what it came up with. Self-centeredness is defined as immoderate concern, or we could say it this way, over-the-top concern with one's own interests and well-being, self-love, egotism. It's killing us. It's killing. It's killing our society. Uh, it's, it's crept into the church. This sense of entitlement where, where uh, just we think we're the center of the universe and everything else revolves around it. We're called, church, listen to me. We're called to be servants. And as we walk along in life and, and conduct ourselves as servants, our master will make sure that with the things that we do need would be supplied to us. Instead of us constantly being concerned with our own needs. Self-centeredness is a sin because it leads to being devoted to self-gratification and overlooking other people's needs. Romans chapter 2, verse 8, but for, but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. Oh, pastor, did you have to read that one? Yeah. It's, it's, it's Bible, just like John 3, 16. Now, put it in context. Jesus has bore all the wrath of God, but still doesn't please him when we act in a selfish way. It doesn't reflect him. We're told, the, scripture, the New Testament scripture tells Ephesians. It says that we're supposed to imitate God as dear children. He's not selfish. Have you ever known God to be selfish? No. Have you ever known him to be self-centered? No. Have you ever seen anything in the Gospels that would indicate that Jesus always put himself first? If anything, it's the other way around. Self-centeredness, self-love are completely opposed to the teachings of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. You want to read the rest of it with me? Nice and loud. One, two, three. It does not demand its own way. Well, so, well Pastor, this is talking about God because God is love. Yeah, but Romans tells us that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts when the Holy Spirit came to reside in us at salvation. Are you listening tonight? I'm sure you didn't just come in to get out of the rain. This is serious stuff. Our relationships are suffering because of this kind of stuff. Marriages are suffering because of this kind of stuff. Family relationships are suffering because of this kind of stuff. This is stuff, this is serious stuff that we got to get out of our lives. Hallelujah. And Jesus strikes at the very heart of this thing, this self-centeredness, with this declaration. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. We, we go, and pick up our cross and follow. No, he said part of picking up the cross is what? 
denying themselves. To deny oneself means letting go of the material things used to gratify self. To deny oneself is to let go of selfish desires, earthly security, and focus instead on the interests of God. Why? Why should I focus on the interests of God? Because the interests of God are always for somebody else. Everything you and I receive, we receive for somebody else. What is the Holy Spirit reminding us this weekend? Be careful not to get so caught up in the me trap. And it is a trap. It's extremely subtle. We don't realize it because we live in a society that's constantly reinforcing this idea. You first. It's all about you. It's all about you. And I need to be so careful not to offend you because, you know, you're the superior being, supreme being in the universe. If I offend you, all the planets will come out of alignment. We've got to stop this garbage. Amen. And this whole mindset of who ends up with the most toys wins is a lie. But you don't see it as a lie until you step out of yourself and you start devoting your time, your energy, your faith, your love, your resources, your conduct, time to somebody else. Then you realize it's not about toys. It's not about gathering things. I don't remember what year it was exactly, but it had to be around 1990. We were just getting ready to file bankruptcy. Whoever's been hanging around here for the length of time, you know that we used to be in the restaurant business in this area. That's why I left all my hair. <laughs> if you've ever worked in a restaurant, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. And by that point in time, it was time to call it quits. We lost everything, houses, transportation, equipment. But I, the government is gracious. They let you keep a certain amount of resources from your business. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was like $7,000 worth of equipment. And I had my kitchen equipment, what I deemed to be Hey, if I ever get another shot to do this, this is what I'm going to need. And I had a storage unit someplace. I don't remember where it was. I think in Lakewood. And then we realized, not going back in this business again. And it was time to sell off that equipment. I'll never forget this feeling because I'd never had it before. That time, when I walked away with an envelope full of cash like this, and I came home, and it was, it was weird. I, I took that envelope, and I remember throwing it across the kitchen counter and saying to my wife, I really don't even want this here, because that's going to hinder us from depending on God like we have been up until that point. I mean, we continued afterward depending on God. But it's one thing depending on God, knowing you got a little bit of a nest egg. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's a whole other thing when you've got to depend on God, and, there is, and he's your nest egg. And it literally bothered me that now this thing could possibly tempt me, this envelope could possibly tempt me to not have to really trust God 
for that half a gallon of milk to give the kids breakfast the next day. You understand what I'm saying? You really haven't experienced putting yourself aside until you have nothing else to depend on. And it's just you and God. Denying oneself turns us from all self-centeredness to God-centeredness. Self is no longer in charge. God is. Christ then rules in our hearts. I'm going to turn around and say what I'm going to say because if I do it this way, somebody's inevitably going to come up in line and go, you were looking at me when you said that. (laughs) Until you come to the end of yourself, and until you put yourself last and you're not even on the back burner, you're not even on top of the stove, you really cannot say that you're a disciple of Christ. Hallelujah, Pastor Joe. I'm so glad I came out tonight. All right, you ready for the teaching? You sure? Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Now, First word is what? Now. Now. As he, who's he? Capitalized. Jesus, right? As he was going out on the road, I want you to, if if you have a Bible here or if you can do it on your little app on the phone, underline going out on the road because you're going to see that phrase over and over again between Mark chapter 10 going into Mark chapter 11. It's a continuous thread. Everything that takes place at this point is happening while Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem. Okay? That's important. All right? Now, as he was going on the road, one came, and that word one there, we'll talk about it in a minute. Now, as he was going down the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him. Now, mind you, this is happening in front of a whole bunch of people. Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? He's testing him. He's teasing him. No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered. He answered who? The one who knelt in front of him. The one who made a big spectacle running up in front of all these people. Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. I'm I'm surprised you would even ask me. (laughs) Then Jesus looking at him, look at this, look at this. You're talking about the heart of the Savior. Now, then Jesus looking at him did what? Loved him. Why? Because this guy doesn't know who he is. And he's so caught up with himself and so impressed with himself. Okay? Then Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, one thing you lack, only one, one thing you lack, Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up your cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful. Say it with me. For he had great possessions. Now, really, the way it should have been written was, for the great possessions had him. Amen? So what do we see here? We've got a guy who is, uh, I would say, religious. 
And he's making this attempt to promote himself. And notice that this rich young ruler, which we traditionally call him, and, and there's a reason, because if you read it in Greek, you understand it better. He left sad because Jesus challenged him not to make life about himself, but to put the needs of others first. In the original language, the word one, where it says one ran up to him, referring to that man, is a word, it doesn't matter, it's neoscus. It tells us that he's young. He's not a baby. He's not a toddler. He's not a teenager. He's a young man, which tells us that he most likely did not earn this wealth, but probably had it handed to him and doesn't have the ability to make it on his own. Thus, the tendency to want to hold on to every penny for himself. It's clear. It wasn't the wealth that Jesus was after, and I'll prove that to you. But it was the young man's self-centeredness. Jesus was wanting him to get his eyes off himself and put his wealth to greater use. You say, well, see, the truth is, this man would have been well provided for by God, according to the word of God, had he done what Jesus told him to do. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. I want to read to you from the New Living Translation. If you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord, and he will. You didn't get it. You didn't get it. What did Jesus tell him to do? Sell everything you have and do what? Give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then take up your cross and follow me. Now, this guy knew the Old Testament. He should have known what Proverbs said. That if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord. And he'll do what? So had he given everything away, had he just sold everything and gave it to the poor, that promise would have become activated in his life. See, we have this tendency to think when God's moving on us to do something, to help someone, to give something, especially if it's going to cost us, especially if it's going to cost us, we think, okay, say goodbye to it. It's going, no, it's, you're just, you're lending it. Amen. You're investing it. Yeah. You're sowing it. Yes. You listening? The issue was not about having wealth. The interest was about trusting in wealth. The issue is about trusting in wealth. Now look at Mark 10, 23. Because now we see how the disciples reacted. Mark 10, 23. Then Jesus looked around. Now mind you, he just got done talking to this rich young ruler. And said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Again, the issue is not about having wealth. The interest is about trusting wealth. I'll throw this in. Is it possible that God established a tithe in order to give his children an opportunity to put God first and to trust him instead of our own abilities? You can chew on that. Now, Pastor Rick and I were having a little conversation before the service started. 
If the disciples were astonished, that tells us something about the disciples. Because let me put it to you this way. I know some of you have heard this already before, but for the sake of those who may, may not have. If I don't have any money, if I don't have any property, if I don't have any resources, why would I be astonished when God challenges this man to sell everything he has and give it to the poor? It wouldn't affect me. Why? Because if he tells me, I don't have anything to sell. Please, when you're reading the scriptures, take off the religious sunglasses. Because most people see the scriptures through Hollywood and through man's tradition. Okay? Nowhere does it say, and I know some people are going to get offended about this, but remember what I said about offense before? <laughs> the word is the word. No place does it tell us that the disciples were poverty stricken. Now, I am not saying to you that they were the wealthiest people in the world. But this tells us something here. Now, we're going to find out some more, especially about Peter. If I don't have anything, and uh, Jesus is standing in front of me, and I see him command this person or challenge this person to sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. It ain't going to hurt me. Why? If I don't have anything... I don't have anything to sell. But if I've got something, if I happen to have been partners in a very successful fishing business, if I have a house on the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, if I've got something, now I'm thinking, is he going to tell me to sell my house? Is he going to tell me to cash in my chips? Is he going to tell me to sell off my part of the fishing business? You remember what Peter was before, right? Yes. What did it strike up on the inside of them? Self-preservation. Self-preservation. I remember when the Lord called me to go to Bible school to start, to start the church. We had gone through bankruptcy. We had scraped enough money together to start another business. After I sold everything. And then, within weeks of being able to start taking a paycheck from that business, the Lord speaks to my heart and says, okay, it's time for you to go to Bible school. I'm like, now? You couldn't tell me six months ago when I had nothing? Now that I finally get a paycheck, now that I can finally put my kids in school, now I can finally buy my kids sneakers, now you want me to walk away? Yeah. Why? Because it costs something to follow God. Get it through your head. It costs something to follow God. It costs something to have intimacy with God. It costs something to get to know the Holy Ghost. It costs something to walk in the call that God has for your life. Then he goes on to say, verse 25, Jesus speaking, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Why? Because they know in order for that camel to go through the eye of the needle, it can't carry anything. 
what he's saying to him is you got to unload everything. Got to get rid of all self-interest. Got to get rid of all, well, you don't understand, Pastor, I have my dreams. Go ahead. Let me know how it works out. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then could be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it's impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. And look at Peter. Look at Peter. Peter's about, Peter's about to show his cards. Then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Where did this come from? You ever talk to somebody and in the conversation you get to know, oh, I see what's in your heart now. What did he say? We've left everything to follow you. What is he doing? He's recalling how, what, you, you remember what happened when Jesus called Peter to come and follow? What happened? He got the biggest catch of fish he ever had in his life. I sympathize with Peter because that's how I felt when my business was finally starting to produce enough that I could finally start to support my family, now you want me to walk away? Yeah. But watch. Peter hasn't gotten over this yet. You want me to prove it to you? What happens after Jesus raises from the dead? What happened after the resurrection? Where did Peter go? John chapter 21, verse 1. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of his disciples, several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee. Who's the sons of Zebedee? James and John. Who was in business with Peter in the fishing business? James and John. <laughs> Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And what did they say? We'll come too. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. Thank God they caught nothing all night. Because had they caught anything, it may have disqualified them from bringing, bringing the gospel to the people that God assigned them to. Are you listening to me tonight? Are, 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 Peter went back into self-preservation mode. Listen to this. Listen to this. When we as leaders, heads of households, those of us that are more mature Christians have been around for a while, walk in a lifestyle of self-centeredness and self-preservation, we affect those around us. What did the disciples say when Peter went fishing? We'll come too. You getting this? Let's go back to Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Peter, Peter, I, I would say it this way, to, to talk it in street language. Peter throws it in Jesus' face that we left everything and walked away to follow you. And Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is not, no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution, and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Amen. 
If you put yourself first, you will end up last. If you pour yourself out for God and others, he will put you first. Yes or no? So was this a teachable moment for the disciples? We would think that they learned their lesson. Yeah. Well, Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Here's that phrase again. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And still, they still can't get over this incident that happened with this rich young ruler. And he took the 12 aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Verse 33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Stop there. Stop there. This is pretty sobering, isn't it? Yes. I mean, they just had one shock of their life, thinking that someday he's going to tell them to get rid of everything they have and follow him. If that wasn't enough of a shock, he's just told them about this horrible death that he's going to suffer. See, they liked the idea that he was Messiah. They loved the idea that finally this one that we've been praying for is here. They saw that he was very different than what the religious leaders had taught them to expect. He wasn't like them. He could relate to their hearts. He had compassion. They saw him raise that widow woman's Son, the only person she had in her life that could support her. They saw him. They watched him raise him. By this point in time, they've seen Lazarus been raised. They're on their way to Jerusalem. They don't have a concept. They don't have an idea yet. They've heard his words, but it hasn't sunk in. And now, here he is. He tells them again, we're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to suffer a horrible death. But I'm going to rise again. And they don't react the way you think they should react. They don't react. It's like... His words went. Next verse, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Are you kidding me? And we sit here and go, How could they pop those disciples? I can't believe them. Honey, when you're self centered, you're capable of anything. When you only have your interests at heart, you got, have you ever been in a position like Jesus? Your heart's aching. You know what you're facing. 
Maybe you've been abandoned by the one that you thought loved you so much. Maybe your kids have abandoned you. Maybe the dreams that you thought, maybe you just came from the doctor's office and he's given you horrible news and you pour your heart, you pour your heart out to the one you think is going to be there for you and it's almost like they never heard a word you said. Doctor told me I only got a few months to live. Oh, what are you going to do with your car? <laughs> yes or no? Am I, am I exaggerating? No. no. Teacher, we want you, in other words, while you're still breathing, we want you to do something for us. Self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. They're so caught up in themselves that they couldn't even be any comfort or show any compassion or concern to Jesus. They lost sight of what he was really, they were so caught up with me that they lost sight of him. And if you don't think that we're not capable, oh, not me. Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Not me. No. I'll die with you. Until self-preservation kicks in. Who, what? I don't know this man. I don't know him. No, we, no, you're one of them. I recognize your dialect. No. And the Bible tells us he cursed the woman. He said, I don't know him. Self-preservation kicks in. What's happened to our hearts? Have we lost sight of the crucifixion? Have we lost sight of what it's cost him? Have we lost sight of the price that he paid? Have we lost sight about how he put himself last so that he could put us first? And yeah, maybe those thoughts would inspire us to see and have a fresh revelation of what it cost Jesus to bring us into this relationship. So, so how do we even, how would we even make an attempt to change our perspective? We, he's not here. His spirit's here. He's not here. But his body is. Church, please, let's stop being so concerned with me and be more concerned with the other person. We're told to carry each other's burdens. We're told to pray for one another. We're told to forgive one another. We're told to make allowance for the other person's faults. Many of us have become experts at pointing the flaws, the character flaws, the, the sin. in everybody else's life. In the meantime, we've got two by fours sticking out of our eyes. We don't honor him when we live this life, especially as a Christian, especially when we understand certain principles especially if we say we're people of faith, but all we want to do is use our faith to get and to get and to get and to get instead of using our faith 
to see someone come into the kingdom, to see, to trust God. Father, you're the Lord of the harvest. You said if we would pray to you that you would send laborers into the harvest field. Father, please send to laborers. I'm trusting you, God. My faith is in you that you're going to send laborers into the field of my loved one. Now, we've taken our faith and we've used it for things that we're going to leave behind when we take our last breath. House, bigger house, bigger, bigger house, more cars, more stuff, more toys. And then we have to rent units to store the stuff that we can't fit in our houses anymore. Pay extra money every month for stuff that in two years we're going to throw away. Or, like I've said so many times, you're going to take your last breath and somebody from the thrift store is going to pull up to your house with a truck and we're going to load all your stuff and put it in there and sell it for 10 cents on a dollar. All this stuff that you tried to hold on to that meant so much to you that you believe, God, I want this. Self-centeredness. Can you give me 10 more minutes? Can you give me 10 more minutes? No, don't, you're wasting my time when you're doing that. Don't. <laughs> See, I want to introduce you to the beginning of part two. I was believing God to have enough time for it. So he used my faith good <laughs> for something good. Can you continue? Who's over there? See, Mark chapter 10 doesn't end there. Mark chapter 10 continues. And you remember they're on the road, right? They're on the road. They're traveling to Jerusalem. Let's pick up in verse 46. Mark 10, 46. Now they reach Jericho. And as Jesus said, now this is the same incident. This is not a separate time. This is a continuation, okay? Then they reached Jericho. And as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named what? Say it right. Bartimaeus. Son of Timaeus, which is what Bartimaeus means, okay? Was, it was sitting beside the road, the road that they're on. Say the road that they're on. The road they're on. When Bartimaeus heard, oh my gosh, I just realized it. They don't even give this guy a name. They just refer to him as the son of Timaeus. You know the son of Timaeus, the blind guy? You know the son of Timaeus, the blind guy? You see him on the road, you see him on the streets. You, you're listening to me. I'm saying this for a point. When the son of Timaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to do what? Shout. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder. Be quiet. Stop it. You're interrupting him. You're, you're interrupting Jesus. The disciples, be quiet. We got a schedule to keep. 
He doesn't have time for you. You're just a blind, you don't even have a name. You're just a blind beggar. Be quiet, stay on the road there. Sit on the curb. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus, thank God Jesus hears us when other people try to shut us up. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. Watch how fast they changed their tune, right? So they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. And Bartimaeus, listen to me. This man has faith. Bartimaeus drew aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. Come on, Jesus, the guy's blind. My rabbi, the blind man, said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has healed you. Instantly, the man could see. Look at this. And he did what? Read it with me nice and loud like you, like you got a voice. He becomes part of the entourage. Where are they going? Chapter 11, verse 1. And Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem. They came to the town of Bethphage, not on Long Island, and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them ahead. Come on, keep going. Go into the village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter, you'll see a young donkey tied. There where no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Do you know what this is? Come on. What's about to happen? Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry. And who's with the crowd following Jesus? Bar Timaeus, the guy who's received his sight, now gets to participate in the biggest celebration in the history of man up until that time. Thank God Jesus heard him because the self-centered people in the crowd said, shut him up. He's making too much noise. He's a bother. We don't have time for this beggar. We got an appointment in Jerusalem. Do you see it? He gets to participate. God honoring his cry. What did he call Jesus? Have mercy on me, thou son of David. What was he calling him? The Messiah. Who were they welcoming into Jerusalem? The Messiah. And he gets to participate it, and he sees it all happening around him. Stand up, everybody. I don't even want to think about the times that our self-centeredness may have cost someone. I don't want to think about the times when we put ourselves first at the expense of somebody else. Missing opportunities for others to receive what God desired for them. Put one hand up. Every single person, put one hand up. And say this with me. Father, Father forgive, me forgive me for the times, for the times that, I've that I've missed it. Where I put myself first. 
for the times I've been selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. Father, by the power of your spirit, help me to put you first, to put others next, and to put myself last. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One more thing before we go. If you are here tonight and you have never had the opportunity to put yourself aside and to declare Jesus Christ the Lord over your life, to put aside your concept of how you're going to get into heaven, because, well, Pastor, I'm a good person. I never hurt anybody. I haven't killed anyone. I, I never robbed a bank. I, well, whoop de doo. Maybe you're a lot better person than I am. But guess what? It doesn't cut it. You need to put your pride aside. You need to put yourself aside. And you need to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and declare, I need you. I need a Savior. If you've never done that, I challenge you in the name of Jesus Christ. When everybody else is dismissed, instead of you walking that way, you walk this way. And there are people here that will pray with you and help you. To pray that simple prayer, making a declaration of your dependence on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And doing what the scriptures tell us. John chapter 1, the gospel of John chapter 1 said, As many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God. I pray that every one of us, before we walk out this door tonight, become children of God. Not just creations of God. Children of God. Amen. Amen. I pray that the Holy Spirit continues to reveal this message to you all throughout this week. Don't forget, come back next week. We'll finish part two. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.